Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books in Popular Culture. And today I am here with Jonathan Wright and Dawson Barrett, who are the authors of Punks in Peoria, Making a Scene in the American Heartland. Um, Jonathan and Dawson, thanks for being here with me. Thanks for having us. We're happy to be here. So can you start by talking a little bit about how this book came to be, why you wanted to kind of write about Peoria, Illinois and punk? Sure. Well, some part of it is that, uh, you know, Jonathan and I grew up in that punk scene. Um, And, you know, our original view was maybe we could sort of document uh, about a five year window that uh, both of us had some connection to. uh, And we kept digging and digging. uh, And all of a sudden it was a uh, a 30-year uh, project that took us seven years to, to get through. Um, so, you know, parts of it we have a connection to, but it's certainly not uh, a memoir or anything like that. Right. Uh, so, I, you know, we, we both came of age in, in the punk scene in the mid to late 90s, and um, Dawson gave me a call one day and was like, hey, I've got this idea. And um, this was something I had thought about doing at some, you know, at, one time or another, but never would have attempted on my own. Um, and so, like he said, we just started kind of digging. Um, I didn't really know much of anything that had come before my time, uh, which was about pre-94. Um, so I started working backwards and um, trying to uncover that hidden history, which, you know, it is pretty hidden. Um, there, you know, it's not in newspapers. It's not, in, uh, for the most part. Um, it's in people's heads. It's in some flyers and, and a few zines that um, still exist that didn't get, you know, water damaged in mm-hmm. someone's basement and um, that sort of thing. So we interviewed around um, 80 people in depth, um, in addition to uh, having a, a public survey that some uh, 50 or 60 other people took. Um, and and we feel like, you know, we talked to uh, certainly there were you know thousands of people that had some sort of involvement in it over these 30 years. Uh, but we talked to a good enough cross section that I think we were able to kind of uh, suss out what, what the story is, what the linkages are um, between these different quote unquote generations, um, which in the punk scene is, you know, maybe a year and a half or two years. And um, it's, it was really, you know, a really fun and exciting process, uh, both for us to kind of revisit some of our own memories, but then also to discover a lot of new things that uh, we didn't know and to contextualize that uh, with the broader kind of cultural uh, wins um, over the years. So for folks who don't know, right, you're talking about Peoria, Illinois. And so we sort of have to set the scene for Peoria, which you do really well, right? Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? Like, where is Peoria um, and, and sort of the the defining aspects or elements of Peoria? Yeah. Uh, so Peoria is about halfway between Chicago and St. Louis, right in the smack in the middle of central Illinois. And, um, you know, over the years, uh, in the early 1900s, it was known as the whiskey capital of the world. We had dozens and dozens of distilleries. And of course, that all um, that all ended with prohibition. Um, so there was kind of this loss of identity there. Um, Caterpillar, the heavy equipment manufacturer, uh, came a, a, up around that time and they were headquartered in Peoria. They were headquartered here up until I believe it was 2018, maybe 2017. It was towards the end of our writing this book when they, le- uh, they left uh, moved their headquarters up to the Chicago suburbs. 
So Peoria has had um, have a very rich history uh, in manufacturing and agriculture, um, but it's also been tinged with lots of disappointments and um, missed opportunities, and that also carried over into the um, punk rock scene as well. And so our story kind of begins in the early '80s when there's a um, there's UAW strikes at Caterpillar. Um, there's the, the Pabst Brewery and uh, uh, Hiram Walker Distillery, both closed in 1982. Um, literally uh, 15 to 20,000 people were thrown out of, out of work, were on unemployment. We had 20% unemployment rate around that time. And so uh, that, was the, that was the setting for these young people coming of age. Um, there were no venues in Peoria. And um, so everyone kind of had to had to build something out of nothing. And so, um, that, that was what, that was the legacy of what we were, we were left with. And you sort of, so, so when you bring us into punk sort of Imperia, you, you start sort of before punk, right? This rise to punk, what was going on in the fifties, sixties. So can you talk us sort of about what that sort of music scene was what that scene was even before you really get into looking at how punk sort of came to Peoria. Sure. Uh, we, I mean, we, we even go back to the vaudeville era. So the like, you know, 1910s and twenties um, uh, Peoria was a big vaudeville uh, scene. And so that, that old phrase, will it play in Peoria kind of arose out of that. Uh, I believe one of the Marx brothers coined it in Galesburg, which is about 30 minutes from Peoria um, and then, uh, you know, over the years that became, you know, in the mid fifties, of course, rock and roll hit Elvis Presley. Uh, we talk about, you know, the first, uh, when there's kids literally wrapped around the block waiting to see Elvis's first movie. Uh, then in the sixties, there was, um, you know, a big garage, garage rock scene, lots of, um, you know, teenagers starting basements in their garages, uh, playing at high school dances and, um, just like everywhere else in the country, really. Um, and then, you know, but, but really Peoria was kind of a meat and potatoes town. Um, lots of bar bands, lots of cover bands. Uh, there wasn't a huge kind of underground um, uh, avant-garde scene or, or anything like that. Um, Dawson? Yeah, I, mean, I think, I think John hit it on the head. I mean, I think, uh, you know, Peoria, has a reputation as a very conservative, sort of all-American, uh, you know, Fourth of July, patriotic, uh, pro-Ronald Reagan kind of city. Uh, and, you know, what we tease at is that that, that was always uh, sort of a make-believe image, that there was always uh, different undercurrents of uh, vice, certainly uh, being one of them. Uh, but uh, at least to the mainstream, you know, this is a very conservative city. It's a very, a very white supremacist city. Uh, you know, this, this middle class that was built uh, through Caterpillar in the mid 20th century was uh, almost exclusively white uh, for the reasons that it was everywhere else. Um, and then, yeah, we, you know, we sort of look at this period of decline uh, in the 80s and the, the 70s and 80s. Uh, but of course, the, the young people we're looking at did not have that big picture view. You know, to them, this is just how it always has been. Uh, and so, you know, they sort of built their rebellion against what they perceived as the mainstream and certainly what uh, you know, I think Peoria as a city was putting out there. Um, but it's a very different view to look at historically than uh, sort of through the eyes of, you know, a 16 year old. And 
one of the things, I mean, and with any sort of history like this, you have certain, uh, I'll call them characters, right? But certain people who really impact or influence um, the scene and, and sometimes because their dad gets moved to Peoria, right? Um, so can you talk a bit about those sort of in those early days, who you really found to be pivotal in starting to get like to get folks to come together and sort of coalesce around? Uh, well, there, so um, you alluded to the Steppy Brothers. Uh, they're uh, they started basically Peoria's first punk rock band, but they had had bands in Chicago when they were younger. I mean, literally 13, 14, 15 years old. Uh, they were helping to start the hardcore scene up there. Their father was transferred. Uh, he was a Caterpillar employee transferred to Peoria. And it's kind of the quintessential Peoria story. Like, um, that you know, they, they came here against their will. They didn't really um, want to leave because they had this thriving scene up in the Chicago suburbs. And when they got down here, there was nothing. Um, there was literally nothing. And, and so um, they put up a flyer at a local record store and a guy named uh, Bloody F. Mess answered this flyer. He became the, their vocalist. And um, he is also a recurring character throughout the book, um, a very um, pivotal, pivotal character in, in many ways and, and is still is still around and kicking and hosting a radio show from his um, from his now home in, in Oregon. Uh, we could we could go on and on about bloody. In fact, there's a whole chapter uh, dedicated just to him. Um, I don't know how in depth we want to get into that, but um, certainly uh, it was, they were kind of, um, they epitomized the sort of dichotomy of the Peoria scene, which was um, your kind of clean cut straight edge kids versus your sex, drugs, rock and roll um, mayhem. uh, And, and, but they were in the same band. (laughs) So, uh, that's kind of Peoria in a nutshell, I think. Yeah, like, and another thing I think was throughout, right, you start at the beginning, you you talk about this at the beginning, but throughout one of the big things, and I think um, something that I found that in lots of small sort of underground punk, you know, and we could even probably see in underground hip hop scenes is that idea of like, where do you play? Like, where do you play? Where do you find places? So even finding places to, like you, we got a band together and like we can play in our basement or we can play where, right? The VFW. So can you talk a bit about that too? Like even that starting and sort of what you've seen where how do we even get a scene to like start? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, so we talk about this as DIY punk rock, right? This idea that you, you start your own band, you put on your own shows, you put out your own records. Uh, and there is an ethos to that. There's sort of a political punk ideology around that. Uh, but there's also a necessity. I mean, in Peoria, there were no all-ages music venues, uh, so young people had to find something that they could transform into one. Uh, and over, you know, these three decades, they, they change constantly. Uh, you know, some last, you know, six months, some last one show. Uh, you know, we, we look at VFW halls and American Legion halls and church basements uh, and restaurants. The back room of a pizza restaurant has been a long-going one. Um, and so it was a constant search, you know, it was constantly calling people uh, and testing the limits of uh, who would rent to you. Uh, but, you know, I, I think there is uh, like the scrappiness to the Peoria scene and, and similar scenes. Right. And, and, you know, Peoria was not necessarily unique in this regard. There were lots of mid-sized cities that were in this similar predicament with uh, declining manufacturing, with the lack of venues. 
Um, and, and so, uh, this is, this is kind of, it's not to say that Peoria is, is completely unique. It's to, it's to celebrate a common spirit. I think that hasn't been celebrated, uh, before, uh, your, your New York's and LA's and DC and San Francisco, there's been, you know, multitude of books, uh, written about all of those scenes and rightly so because they were formative and, and crucial. Uh, but, there's been less of a focus on some of the smaller towns. Um, the, the, you know, they call the Midwest flyover country. Um, this is actually, this is exactly that case of, of, uh, you know, there not being a lot of documentation, um, about this. And so that was something that we wanted to kind of focus on. Yeah, no. And that's one of the things I really appreciated, right? Because, um, I grew up right outside of, Minneapolis, right? Minneapolis, St. Paul. So we did have a, we had a big venue and we had a number of venues, but I also like, um, went to college in Mankate, right? In a smaller town. And now I'm living in a smaller town that has some, right? Like you talk about stabbing westward. And I remember seeing them in Minnesota, right? I remember like that whole idea where you have to sort of scrounge together, find the people. And one of the things I appreciate too, I'd love you to talk a little bit more about is how you talk about often those connected, like trying to bring in like larger bands or trying to bring in touring bands. So we have a band coming in and we, you know, we need to get that advertising out there. We need to get them in and we need to find a place to play, which is again, one of those things in the sort of mid-sized towns, right? Or small towns, like people are coming through. We don't have the, we can't like send everybody a text. Right. Uh, Yeah. Well, uh, this would be pretty common, I think, elsewhere as well. But uh, in Peoria, and one of the main hubs was uh, a place called Co-op Records. Uh, and it was one of the few places that allowed uh, you to put up a flyer. And so, uh, you know, there was no internet. I mean, it was, it was word of mouth based on flyers. And so, you know, all these people have these stories of, oh, I saw this at Co-op and then I spread the word to my friends or... Uh, you know, I was looking through records and the, the co-op employees started talking to me about it. And that's uh, so, you know, in some ways throughout the decades, the scene sort of revolves around you know, a very few uh, number of places that uh, were kind of open to that. Right. And I actually I worked at co-op records uh, 1994 to 96. And that's how I got into the scene, because uh, the guy I worked with every night was in a band. And, you know, he would tell me about uh, kind of like what the what the scene had been like in its glory days, like literally a year and a half prior. And um, at the time, there was really a lack of, of shows happening because there wasn't there wasn't that um, person. You know, it really takes an individual to um, to go out there and, and set that up. Um, so I was like, well, why is, why isn't anybody doing that? So, um, we, we made a call to a Legion hall and, you know, within five minutes we had rented the place and it's like, okay, well, so we got a bunch of local bands together and we played the show and then we rented it again and we rented it again. And within three months, um, I had signed my first contract to bring hum from Champaign Urbana, uh, to Peoria. And, um, this was right on the cusp of their major label debut on RCA records and, um, you know, they came through and, uh, there's, you know, more stories there, but, uh, you know, and then w- and a few months after that came the Jesus lizard and they were warming up for their Lollapalooza tour. So it was like, you went from, okay, we're going to book these local bands to all of a sudden, like we can reach out to actual promoters and we can bring our favorite bands here. Like we can actually do that. That was a revelation, uh, for me to, to realize that, you know, um, 
the biggest show that I did was the Fugazi show uh, in October of 95. And I mean, they were my favorite band. And I thought it was a pipe dream that we could ever connect with them. And, you know, like they did, they came here and they came because of the uniqueness, because of the scrappiness. It wasn't a, uh, a normal venue. They hadn't ever played here before. And um, so it was, it was really just a, a series of, of really um, fun and exciting revelations that we can really do something um, ourselves. Yeah. And I, I admire that so much. You know, one of the things that we see from DIY is that it's very empowering uh, and it's sort of, uh, well, I mean, it really gives uh, young people some hubris about what is possible, which I, I think they kind of need. Uh, and, you know, John is referencing these, these great shows uh, but there were also risks involved. I mean, periodically you'd put on a show and no one would come and you would lose money. And for an 18 year old to lose a few hundred dollars is, you know, horribly embarrassing. And it's also a ton of money. Uh, so I, mean, I think that uh, I think that's really admirable. And, and I also think that in some of these sort of stories and there that you tell um, experiences that you tell, um, you get at really that ethos of punk, right? Where, um, the artist is, you, you you know, tell the artist, like, I'm going to lose money on this. And they're like, we're just going to, was it Hum who was like, we're just going to take 25 bucks, right? Yeah. Or even Fugazi, right? Even Ian's like, like, I'm going to pay for your contacts or everybody sit down, right? Yeah. So you get that really idea of like, what, um, what most folks in the scene, regardless of, you know, whether they're, you know, straight edge or not, you know, whatever they are, really wanted that scene to be. Yeah, we we really wanted to um, highlight those moments where the idea of cooperation and collaboration and building something together really kind of came together and and bore fruit, and we saw it happening before our eyes. Um, you know, those stories are just as interesting as the the missed opportunities and the and you know the the mayhem and fights and whatnot that happened at, at shows um, that that caused those venues to, you know, close their doors to us. Um, but so we, we really wanted to focus on, um, you know, on that collaborative spirit. Mm -hmm. um, so there's other things that are really sort of unique to Peoria, unique to the area that continues. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about um, corn chip. And that, right? <laughs> because it is it's one of those things where it's like, that's awesome, but it's so unique to this space. Dawson, you want to lead on that? Yeah, so corn chip is a term that I'm guessing almost no one listening to this uh, will have heard of. Uh, it started off in the Peoria, uh, the broader Peoria area at a high school. Uh, and it was originally, at least according to sort of various lore, uh, a derogatory term used to sort of bully uh, outcasts and weirdos, uh, to call them a corn chip. Uh, but it sort of developed and was somewhat taken back uh, by the people who are being called corn chips. And so it's, it's sort of a, a subculture unique to Peoria uh, and maybe a little bit in the Quad Cities. There, there are some like, <laughs> it pops up a little bit in a few other places. Um, but it sort of uh, overlaps with the punks, but uh, is also maybe a little more welcoming, a little bit more interested in dance music, not just punk rock. Uh, it's very much the pretty and pink version of the 80s. A lot of people had uh, sort of teased hair or uh, 
you know, maybe shoulder pad suits. I don't know. Uh, it's really, uh, it's really kind of a wonderful part of the book in part because I think people who hear punks in Peoria immediately think, Oh, we're talking about Mohawks. And, you know, we were really deliberate that we wanted to talk about, uh, a wide range of sort of misfits uh, who were drawn together because they had to, you know, they had to, they had to find each other because there weren't, there weren't enough metal heads or enough, uh, you know, street punks or ska kids or whatever. Yeah. So, I mean, this is really like digging into the height of, of the 1980s. Um, the, the, you know, the corn chip phrase kind of came up in 1985 and, you know, it, it encompassed just anyone that was a weirdo that had big hair and, you know, like didn't really fit in with their high school. And so, you know, these people kind of gathered together at, at these, you know, teen nightclubs and at shows in different places and kind of found each other. People from various high schools who didn't fit in in their hometowns kind of came together and and found um, others who didn't fit in. And I mean, the, the this was really one of the funnest parts of the book was, you know, tr- tracing the um, the origins of this phrase and, and hearing about the different, uh, the different kind of fables that have arisen around it. Um, and, you know, people have varying stories and, and, you know, we're going back literally 35, almost 40 years. Um, but, uh, from what we found, you know, so I remember myself in the early nineties being in junior high and hearing corn chip. I had friends who were corn chips who were, you know, a few years older than me, um, and there were certain hairstyles and, and different things like that. So I always thought that that was a phrase that everyone knew, that everyone around the country used this phrase corn chip. And it wasn't until we got out of um, our hometown and, and kind of, you know, heard from others and no one had any idea what, what we were talking about. Um, so then to dig back into that and to find out, you know, we, we looked for other places where this word might have might have gone. And the only other place really uh, that we found was in the Quad Cities in uh, Davenport, Iowa and uh, Rock Island um, there, which came via Peoria because one of the DJs at one of these teen nightclubs uh, traveled up to Peoria and became the DJ at a nightclub or traveled to the Quad Cities and became a DJ there. So he brought with him, not only, you know, his massive collection of dance 12 inches and industrial, you know, proto industrial and um, different things like that. He also brought this word corn chip. So if you were to type corn chip into the search bar on Facebook, for example, you will find two Facebook groups uh, that are dedicated to, you know, kind of the remembering reminiscing about the old corn chip days there's one in peoria there's one from the quad cities and there's a little bit of overlap but they they kind of operate as two independent entities and um, we were able to connect with a lot of the people involved in that and um, kind of hear the story from many different angles so that we could figure out how to how to tell it in a fair way um, that kind of gave credence to uh you know how it happened and the originators and kind of where it went so yeah, that was a, a fun, fun aspect of the book. Yeah, and I love that there's sort of this this mythology around it. Uh, anytime that we've posted on social media, you know, someone says, oh, no, my babysitter was the first person who said corn chip. And then someone else says, no, 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 my 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 sister said corn chip this year at this school. Uh, and so everyone has uh, an origin story. So we had to tease through that. I mean, I think it's really great. And um 
And then also now living about, what, 60 miles from, you know, Peoria in Macomb. And, and this week, so it's Heritage Days here. So in the Midwest, at least, you have these, you know, every town has their little heritage. So lots of people are returning. So I'm getting together with friends. Many of them grew up in Macomb, right? Um, so I think I have to ask if any of them have heard of it, right? Like even the, like, which they probably haven't. But I'm like, I'm going to have to ask about corn chip now. I'm going to have to see if anyone knows. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and anyone has heard it. Uh, and you bring up, like, when you sort of talk about this, like that, like corn chip and other things. One thing I found really interesting, and I'd love to talk a bit more, is that the the real connections, like you talk a bit about sort of the Christian hardcore coming together, right? With these like atheists in the same stage and, and how there wasn't a scene. You couldn't have like each one couldn't have their own scene or their venue. They had to come together. So can you talk a bit about, you know, that and how you saw that and that coming about in these different sort of iterations of punk? Sure. Well, you know, I think there are sort of two different ways to look at it. You know, one is about these sort of social misfits or social outcasts or weirdos uh, finding one another uh, because there weren't, you know, enough of one type. Uh, There's also, you know, a, a really practical element to it that, you know, if you're renting out a VFW hall, you have to bring in a certain amount of money. And if there are only, you know, 20 ska kids, then you better book a death metal band so that you can get another 20 kids here or whatever. And so, you know, these shows would end up, you know, often having uh, a few hundred people at them, uh, you know, and so you'd get exposed to different sort of sub subcultures or sub genres. Uh, and it didn't, it wasn't always smooth. Uh, it's not that everyone has uh, really eclectic tastes or anything like that, but uh, it, it did certainly create a certain dynamic. Yeah, and you, uh, you mentioned the the Christian hardcore uh, scene. You know, I, I think that's a very interesting um, aspect of this. Um, not far from here, about an hour from here, uh, in Bushnell, Illinois, was was they had the Cornerstone Music Festival for I don't know twenty twenty years, twenty five years or so, and a, a huge scene developed out of that. Um, I mean, there'd be twenty thousand people at the festival, but then back here in Peoria. At around that time, around the mid nineties, uh, maybe 97, 98 might've been peak years. I'm not exactly sure on that, but um, they brought that back with them. Um, I mean, there were, there were literally uh, dozens and dozens of, of uh, you know, Christian hardcore kids. And they were also attending the same shows as, you know, the, the more nihilistic side of, of uh, the Peoria bands and, and generally got along for the most part. Um, and so I, yeah, there was kind of a, you know, Peoria um, as always uh, was kind of a microcosm of larger trends, I think in, in popular culture. No. And I found um, that I have students, most, some of them um, sort of traditional college age students, but some older who even can tell like, talk about the tooth and nail, right? Like the record, the labels that even came out of that scene and the lasting, the lasting impact. I had one student who wanted to do a podcast on like all the recordings and he and his friends were going to sit around and talk about those recordings coming out of that and going to Cornerstone. So there is this huge sort of lasting impact of, of that, um, in, especially in this area, right? Especially in the Illinois area, right? 
Yeah, and, and I think, you know, if you come from a, a punk or metal or hardcore background, uh, it seems a little odd uh, that, that Christian uh, versions of these things would be so big. Um, but, you know, we, several people have mentioned to us, uh, I think we talk about Chris Bennett in the book, that, you know, this was a moment in which uh, sort of youth groups were taking off and sort of, again, tooth and nail, solid state, these uh, uh, Christian, basically punk and metal record labels were, were really, really popular. And for uh, young people in sort of a religious household, that could be there in, uh, in the other direction. That was an access point to heavy music uh, because you could get it at the, the Christian bookstore. And uh, mom and dad said, oh, that's fine. You know, it doesn't have the parental advisory uh, logo on it. It's, it's, it's Christian. It's, it's good to go. And so, uh, you know, that could be a, an access point to really heavy music uh, and then sort of beyond. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, um, it, as that access point, it, it literally opened up people to a wider world. Um, once uh, you got beyond just the confines of, of the Christian hardcore space, and you started reaching out to others um, in the DIY music scene, um, you can literally see the evolution of many of these people's faith. Uh, you know, there was a band that we talk about, and then the band on the cover of the book started out as essentially a Christian hardcore band, um, although they did not wear their Christianity on their sleeves. Um, but uh, they were all, but they were also searching. Um, they were they were still finding out who they were. Um, they were evolving as, as humans and, and just learning about uh, what is out there. And um, so to see that evolution happen and, you know, uh, the majority of, of the people from this particular band are, are still musicians, still playing in bands today. Um, the, the two main guys from that band are in a band called Minsk that is, uh, you know, tours the world. They play in uh, Europe and um, all over the country and have, you know, been a big influence on others. And, um, they evolved, they happen to evolve out of their own Christianity, um, into more of a, a mystical, uh, spiritual, um, kind of place. Um, but it, I, I think it's really, I think that's really an interesting aspect of, of kind of what happened. Um, you know, we talk about how teenagers don't have it all figured out. They don't know, um, they don't really know who they are. So this entire book is, is talking about people that were still trying to find out who they are. And so they, you know, they make mistakes. They, um, you know, they don't always have it right. Uh, but that's kind of the beauty of it. It, it, It's messy, but, um, it's, it's also like a really, um, it's a really positive, I think, uh, reflection, uh, opportunity for reflection. Yeah. And I read, um, a book on punk in East Germany before the Berlin Wall fell, right? And one of the places that they were able to go and hang out and play was churches, right? Because it was sort of like, we're going to accept, we're going to let everybody in. So that was like, when you talk about sort of the church basement or all that, like that was the space where exactly like it might not be, they might not agree with what's going on, but um, they were at least allowed to be in that space. And sometimes that's all kids, right? You just need that space to be. You another really I think interesting thing about Peoria is its um, relationship to like also there's so it's sort of a university town but not right there's a university there but also then its closeness um, to Urbana Champagne which was huge musically and sort of what that meant um, for 
not only creating a scene, but sort of wanting to be its own, right? Wanting to be its own, like not get like sucked up into these other scenes. So can you talk a little bit about that too and what you sort of saw and how that worked? Yeah, we uh, we ended up uh, deciding to devote an entire chapter to Bloomington Normal and um, um, Champagne and some of these other um, places in Central Illinois because you know the same things were happening in in all of these towns and there were there was crossover there. Um, Peoria was the largest city of of all of these cities, but it had probably the smallest scene or or the the least developed scene because even though it did have um, Bradley University as a private college, it did not foster the same sort of um, same sort of atmosphere as a Champaign Urbana, um, which you know it, obviously the school is much larger there, and 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 Bloomington Normal with um, ISU. Uh, so, you know, um, if we were to go by the size of the scenes and and what came out of there, you know, the book really should have been written about Champaign Urbana. Um, but of course, you know, we came from Peoria and, and, you know, I think talking about the missed opportunities and the, the lack of, of, uh, infrastructure to, to do what we did, um, is, is just as interesting as, um, as a thriving scene with multiple, um, all ages venues, uh, like they had in Champaign. Um, but, you know, we wanted to at least connect some of those threads, uh, to talk about, uh, you know, it, it was it wasn't just Peoria. Um, you know, a lot of the Peoria bands got their first. You know, the first time they played on a stage was at the Gallery in Bloomington Normal. Um, that was huge, uh, and and so um, we really wanted to kind of give those cities their due and and tie them in, connect them to this story because they're they really are an essential component. I remember you know many times driving, you know, getting a carload of friends and driving to Champaign and going to Mabel's and going to the Blind Pig and, um, you know, seeing um, these bands from Touch and Go and AMREP and, and all these uh, uh, bands from the, you know, mid 90s that we were into. And, and that, you know, for the most part, they weren't coming to Peoria um, other, with, with some major exceptions that we, you know, we talked about earlier, but um, it, it was, it's, it's very important. Um, to include, to go beyond just uh, the Peoria scene to show how it connected to the wider world. So one thing, and you, in your conclusion, you sort of bring this up, but I always have to ask about it because it's my thing. Um, But you talk about sort of the, um, often, you know, we look at, punk is often looked at as this old boys club, but it really wasn't. And what I appreciate is, is throughout the book, you didn't just, you weren't like, I'm going to highlight this chapter on women in punk, right? Like they were in here throughout and then you bring it up again. But I just like to talk about it because women in punk, I like, right? Um, But can you talk a little bit about that too? Like how you were seeing women um, throughout this scene, whether that history, right? And you mentioned the history sometimes not always written. Um, So I'd love for you to just highlight some of that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, women were a consistent and important part of this scene throughout the 80s, 90s, 2000s. You know, they were in bands, they were booking shows, uh, they were putting out zines, you know, all these things. Um, and I, I think it's it's fair to, to sort of question sexism within punk rock. Uh, you know, one of our conclusions is that, you know, maybe punk isn't really a counterculture it's just a, a freer space uh, to sort of work through these ideas. Um, you know, what we didn't find was, for example, uh, a really clear like riot girl presence. Uh, 
uh, you know, which is obviously something you're quite familiar with. Um, you know, and I even followed up with uh, some of the women who were in the book and sort of asked them directly about their experiences with sexism. Uh, and, you know, to paraphrase, they said, you know, it was there. Often it was subtle. Sometimes it was not subtle. Uh, but uh, in general, you know, they saw themselves as musicians or showbookers, not as female musicians, not as, you know, women musicians. And so that, that's certainly a different take than, you know, revolution girl style, uh, girl style now. Um, and, and I think that it would be a little bit different uh, in Peoria that, you know, it'd be a little bit tempered. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think it's super important. And I think it is a, a constant question to to ask now, but also to, to sort of reflect on uh, the strengths and weaknesses of, of this culture that we are a part of. Right. You know, uh, the conclusion was a really important chapter to us um, because, you know, we, we, we had a story to tell and we, you know, you can't just make things up. We, you know, um, we, we had to, we have to acknowledge the downsides because yes, we're celebrating the great things that were done in the creativity and scrappiness um, of, of these, you know, mostly kids, uh, young people. Um, but again, they didn't have everything right. Um, we, we had to find a way to acknowledge, you know, that, that it was a mostly, um, almost entirely white space, um, that yes, women were, you know, huge part, um, integral to the scene, but the scene was male dominated also. Um, it, it was, and we, we wanted to, um, we didn't want to wait for those questions to come up later. Uh, we wanted to take, tackle that directly and acknowledge that, you know, this was not perfect. Um, we, we celebrate the positive aspects, but we also acknowledge that, you know, um, there are down, there were downsides and there was, uh, elements of racism and homophobia and sexism, um, throughout. And, and, and there still are today, of course. Um, you know, it's different when you're, when you're looking back 30 years through the lens, through a contemporary lens, um, you know, even in the last, uh, five, five years or so, the, the discourse around these topics has changed dramatically. And um, we wanted to at least uh, contextualize this book within that lens so that um, others like us could, could, um, you know, see that we, we did think about these issues and, you know, we tried to at least um, provide some sort of analysis of, from, from at least from what our perspectives were, um, about these topics. Yeah. And I appreciate, right. I appreciated that like throughout that it wasn't like, like I said, we have to have the chapter on women. Like it was like, we're just going to discuss them as they sort of appear and come like, um, uh, the, because like one of the, um, the record store, was it a record store? Um, the owner mm-hmm. where they, right. Like what's really inter what's really important and seemed to be one of the longest lasting, um, spaces where bands were pl- right where you had shows and that kind of thing and so I think it's important that that is just part of it right it's not the separate part but it is just part of the narrative right so. absolutely right yeah so that's Leanna Sweetland who uh, owned TMI Records and you know exactly right like she's an important part of the story she's not an important woman part of the story right <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that isn't how she saw herself or how other people saw her Another thing, like around those, like, you know, we've got the good, the bad, the ugly, whatever, you know, we've got it all, um, is that, um, and especially in, I think, 
Midwest, sort of white conservative Midwest, that skinhead element, right, which you sort of address um, as well. Um, and and like some of the white supremacist things that do occur and happen, um, which we see even now far too often. And so I'd like, you know, for you to talk a little bit about that and 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 how you sort of talk tackled, you know, the, some of those issues within. Uh, yeah, we I mean, we we came of age. Uh, there, there was a guy named Matt Hale who came out of East Peoria um, he went to Bradley. He was a student there and he started, um, he started all of these white supremacist organizations. And he, you know, he was a, a right-hand man of David Duke. And um, he, you know, they, so, so I, I came of age hearing about him and hearing about these rallies that, that would happen in this area. Um, you know, uh, nearby uh, Pekin was a, was a sundown town. It was uh, literally the regional headquarters of the KKK back in the 1920s. And um, all of this uh, entered into the firmament of, of, of this setting in which, you know, we were coming up. Um, but we were, you know, being influenced by, um, you know, the Fugazis of the world and that more um, progressive element. Um, and, and even outside of that, you know, we knew that this was just wrong and horrible and despicable and wanted to take a stand. And so... You know, we were fortunate that, um, you know, I mean, the majority of, of the local punk scene felt the same way. And, and, you know, I would say a lot of the presence of the protesters at these rallies were a lot of the people involved in the punk rock scene. And then on the flip side of that, you have the uh, neo-Nazi punks and, um, you know, people who weren't necessarily Nazis, but they kind of, you know, were just just came along with that. Not that there's really much point in, in um, the difference, uh, but, you know, people started trouble and started fights and shut shows down. And, you know, they ruined a very positive thing that we were trying to build. Um, and so there were, you know, we, we had both both sides of that coin, I think, um, were, were related to this, uh, what we're talking about. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it wasn't just in Peoria. That certainly was happening, uh, you know, around the world even. Uh, but, you know, I mean, that's one of the one of the things about punk rock or, you know, any kind of similar uh, subculture is that it's a bit freer. It's a bit more open. You know, there aren't formal rules and, you know, the same dynamics that allow, you know, the, the Christian hardcore kids and the atheist metal kids to come to the same show uh, is also something that uh, might appeal to neo-Nazi skinheads who want to come cause trouble. Uh, and so, you know, it's an experiment in, in some sort of democracy. And so it's sort of the, the group has to decide, well, are we cool with anyone and everyone showing up and causing trouble or are we going to, you know, draw a line somewhere? And I, and I think to their credit throughout, you know, throughout this history, that line was pretty firmly anti-Nazi. That there, there is uh, there's behavior that is unacceptable. There are positions that are unacceptable uh, in the interest of everyone else. And, and this is very serious stuff that we're talking about. Matt Hale today sits in prison for, uh, you know, taking a hit out on a federal judge. Um, you know, he was sentenced to, I think, 40 years in prison. Um, and that's where he is now. And that's where he should be. Uh, but so so these these things were were very, very serious matters, not just um, not just a bunch of dumb kids uh, who, um, you know, were just, you know, 
found something, you know, looking for belonging or, or whatever, and found something in, in that, um, we're, we're really talking about serious offenses. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think it's really important, right. To like, not necessarily highlight that, but really show how, the, you know, the seriousness and, and, and how, yes, it isn't. Cause sometimes people are like, well, those are either, it's like, those are just kids and they're doing that. Right. Which can be problematic. Or, you know, they're kids and those kids are a problem, but really, you know, showing like with um, Matt Hale and and what was happening um, during that, you know, and during that time and and some of the things that were going on. Right. And, you know, a lot of this book was written during the Trump era. And so these topics were very much on our minds. Um, It was very important to us that we that we also drew this line in our book. Um, uh, you know, as we're connecting these threads, you know, uh, through the modern lens, um, that, you know, we're, we're not past this yet. This is still happening. Um, and, and, and I, uh, I mean, I always bring, I don't always bring this up, but it always, it, it's a through, it's a through topic for me all the time. And because again, when you talk about the scene starting in the eighties and you mentioned him a number of times, right? Reagan and that it's morning again in America and the impact and influence. I mean, and I think of on like, Fugazi, minor, like that whole scene, like um, the rock against racism, right? Like that, what was going on in the eighties and the impact of that on the punk scene and, and just on being, I, you know, I was a teen that, that was like Ronald Reagan, like impacted and influenced and changed my life as a teenager, because, you know, that's what I, you know, I grew up and came of age and what was going on politically during that time. Right. He was the poster boy. I mean, you know, the dead Kennedys and, um, all of that, uh, you know, fighting against that, uh, Reaganism. And, you know, I think when we got into punk rock, we didn't even really, you know, we didn't have sophisticated, um, politics, um, ourselves yet. So, um, that was, you know, very foundational. And I think that it is for lots of people. So, you know, hopefully other people reading will recognize themselves in, in that as well. Yeah. I mean, I think that that speaks to the point that, you know, these white supremacist ideas have long been mainstream uh, in our country. Uh, you know, we, we often focus on sort of fringe elements representing that, but uh, there, there's a broader history there. Uh, and, you know, even if Nazis hadn't shown up, you know, these punk kids would have still been confronting dominant issues of racism and recreating some of them and, and, uh, you know, fighting others. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm careful about only focusing on, you know, the skinheads, uh, when there's so much more to talk about. So in, in doing this work and doing this research and talking to people and also in your own experiences, are there stories either that you heard or, you know, that, Part of your participation that are like, th- like something that your fa- I don't know if your favorite is the thing to say, but something that really stood out for you, um, that you you know that you were really like this. I love this. So many things, <laughs> so many things. You know, we talked about corn chips. We talked about some of the bigger shows that happened. I think for me, a lot of um, we knew that we um, we knew that we had to contextualize all of this for the. Uh, the audience. And so that first chapter really talks about Peoria in general and, um, and, and sets the stage for, you know, the city itself, but also the, the music scene in Peoria so that the reader can, can grasp uh, the, some context before we get into the, um, you know, 
the invasion of punk rock uh, in the early 80s. So a lot of the things, uh, you know, it was one chapter, but it required so much re- research to figure out what to what what details to include, what not to include, um, how to tell a cohesive story through that. And so, you know, we discovered so many things like, you know, shows that we never knew existed. The MC5 played in Peoria in the early 70s. Black Sabbath played here. I did not know that until we, we dug back into this. Um, in the early 60s, there was a barn that uh, was used uh, that the black community in Peoria used to bring um, uh, uh, Jackie Wilson, James Brown, Ike and Tina Turner. They all played here. Um, and we've, we found enough evidence that we know that they did, but there's really hardly a trace of it. Um, there, there are no advertisements for these concerts in the, in the local newspaper, um, because it was for, they were for a black audience and, um, the journal star at the time, the, the newspaper of record in Peoria, um, you know, they were not, they were not touching that. Um, and so, you know, to, to find, to hear directly from some people about these, you know, a a whole book could be written just on that, um, which became literally two sentences out of one paragraph in the first chapter. Um, so, so many, so many, um, things those are the things that I guess stuck out to me. Um, I don't know, Dawson. What's your favorite story? Yeah, well, as, as Jonathan said, there, there were so many. You know, one of the delights of uh, writing this together is that we would pass back and forth these drafts with discoveries we had made. And I, I think we were the two most excited people to be like, oh, I can't believe you found that. That's amazing. Uh, which is, you know, really empowering and uh, reinforces things. I guess on, on a personal level, you know, when I was in uh, punk rock in my teens, if you had told me something that had happened five years earlier, I wouldn't have really cared because I would, I thought those people were a hundred years old. You know, I mean, the distance is just so immense. Uh, but at this age, looking at that perspective, you know, we're all talking about 16, 17, 18, 19 year olds. Um, and one of the discoveries was that there had been uh, one of the venues that was used in the, the mid eighties was the local ice skating rink, uh, which I didn't know that, but I knew it as an ice skating rink. You know, I, went skating there as a second grader or whatever. Uh, and so those little tidbits that like, you know, all these places that I, you know, drove by every day of my childhood had once been punk spaces. Uh, I think that's just a really exciting way to kind of view the world around you. Yeah. And we had, you know, uh, that just made me think of several other anecdotes, which literally are like one sentence in the book, but you know, there was a, there was a shotgun range uh, here in town or, or on the outskirts of town um, that, uh, th- that the punks would uh, for a year or so um, would, would rent out and throw on, throw shows there. So they, they did a peace festival at a shotgun range. There's all these shotgun shells like lying around on the ground. And, and this is a peace festival. I, I just thought that was so hilarious and so um, spot on for Peoria um, another another thing that came to mind was a band called Smoldering Remains that was kind of a hardcore slash almost metal band. Um, in 1989, they got booked at, at the Peoria Civic Center Theater as part of this uh, talent show. And they were playing um, adjacent to all of these R&B acts. And I don't think I don't know how that happened. 
Um, I wish I could have seen the expressions on people's faces when when Smoldering Remains went into their set. Um, needless to say, they were not invited back. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the, just hilarious. Uh, and, and I have a whole folder of, of outtakes of things that we couldn't quite fit in the book um, that I should probably go back through and 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 um, see if there's a way to, to get some of those uh, unearth some of those stories and put them out there into the public consciousness. Cause it's, it's, you know, it's really, um, it's fun. It's, it's amusing. It's interesting. Uh, it, it, it adds a lot, I think a, a lot to the book. Yeah, and I have to like, and that's sort of, sort of this beauty of like the small town, right? Like in unearthing that kind of sort of small town, it's where you drive around. And if you're with somebody, you know, even if you don't know, you're with someone who's like, yeah, like, we used to like have gigs in that basement or upstairs there, you know, so-and-so played or, or, you know, so-and-so showed up or didn't show up, but you know, um, who was it? The dead can somebody was black flag with black flag, not didn't show it. Like somebody was going to show up. That was it. Right. I'm like, somebody wasn't going to show up or write the story of, you know, how, you know, so-and-so like punched out the bartender there or whatever it might be. But like those great, like small town kind of, um, and yeah, and reading this in the, in the beginning, I'm like, holy crap, Black Sabbath played. And I was like, look at these folks who play. Right. Peoria. Yeah. yeah like, you, know. Was, you know, Black Flag was booked to play in Peoria on their final tour. There were, and there's, there's evidence of this. Um, and uh, the, the two teenage promoters, um, when they got the contract in the mail, um, they freaked out because they're like, oh, my God, we have to provide all of this stuff like they they canceled the show because uh, it just freaked them out. Um, so, you know, here we are 40 years later talking about how Peoria missed out on Black Flag's final tour, which is legendary. Um, they literally played their final show as a band a week after they were supposed to play in Peoria. Um, and that ties into um, so many things about, uh, you know, the missed opportunities um, in Peoria, uh, which was kind of a running theme of the book. And, um, you know, just as important as what actually did happen. Mm-hmm. So uh, we've t- I mean, we, I could probably talk to you forever, but we've talked for a while. So are you... Um, either of you, both of you, are you working on anything new or are there any, you know, my last question is usually like, you got anything you want to promote or anything else with this? Uh, you know, or yeah, it, now that COVID's kind of, you know, ta- hopefully tailing off, uh, are you trying to get some bands together <laughs> to like perform for this? Like, what are you doing? Like next things. Funny. You should ask. Uh, yeah, it was bigger. <laughs> uh, we, we, you know, the original intent was, Oh, we'll get back. We'll get a lot of these bands back together and have a big release show. Um, and, and we didn't know that that was going to be possible because of COVID. But um, as, as um, you know, things have kind of improved, uh, we decided to go ahead and go for it. So in September, we're doing a festival uh, in the Peoria warehouse district. There's 14 bands. It's the Sunday right before labor day. And um, there's some contemporary bands. There's um, a, a lot of bands from the 2000s that um, haven't played shows in 15 years who are reforming and playing um, some bands even extending into the 90s. And I think we just had confirmation that uh, one of the Steppies is going to be there and um, they're going to do a short rendition of of the Living in Peoria, which, you know, one of the very first punk rock songs out of Peoria in the uh, mid eighties. So that, that'll be, um, that'll be fun. Um, we did, this was about much more than a book. Um, I mean, the book is the, is the 
the main thing. But then we also um, we put together a compilation record uh, that's uh, out on CD now. The vinyl is coming hopefully next week. Um, and, you know, putting that together was a huge process. And um, having this festival, um, we're going to have an art show along with this festival featuring a lot of um, people who came out of the punk scene um, who became artists and different things. And so we're, we really wanted to, you know, we were limited with the book. We couldn't cover every band that mattered. We couldn't mention name drop every single person who, who, who um, accomplished something. But uh, I think by um, extending out on social media, adding this festival, adding the compilation. And, um, you know, we've really watched as people have come together over this, um, I think there was a lot of trepidation before the book came out, like what's going to be in it and what are they going to say about me? Um, and, and I'm sure that, uh, you know, there's still, uh, some of that out there. Um, not everyone has read the book, obviously it's only been out for a week. Um, but we've been pleased with the initial reception, um, and response, um, that we did, you know, pretty accurately tell the story. Um, and you know, we're, we're grateful, uh, to all of those people and, um, you know, we have seen some connections develop and, uh, you know, one of the guys in the book messaged me, he's like, you know, he wanted to extend an apology to someone that he, um, screwed over back in 1980, <laughs> And I mean, he's telling me about, you know, like I've, I sent this message out, you know, and, and we've made amends and, you know, I feel really good about it. It wouldn't have happened without, without this project. So that makes me feel good. Uh, we accomplished what we set out to do, which was to be accurate and tell the story, but also um, to, you know, to bring people together. Yeah. And for sure, you know, the process, it's been a long process uh, of researching and writing this book is, you know, we've been able to connect with old friends that we hadn't talked to in a long time, but also, you know, meet many, 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 many people who uh, we had no connection to before. Uh, so I'm going to, I'm not really working on a new project. I'm going to sort of bask in this for a while. And I'm really looking forward to the festival. I'm going to come back to Peoria uh, because I, I mean, I think we need that. I think everybody has been longing for connection. Uh, and I, you know, this has been such a terrible year for everyone. Uh, so I, I think that this can be, can be a part of that, that process. Well, like now I know where I'm going, right? <laughs> like I'm taking the hour and a half drive. Like that'll be awesome. <laughs> Fantastic. It's, it's, yeah, no, a Sunday punk all day i'm good right (laughs) (laughs) it has been really great again jonathan wright and dawson barrett who wrote punks in peoria making a scene in the american heartland thanks so much for talking with me um, for new books network new books and popular culture thanks so much rebecca 